Anyway, looking around, it looks like I know most of you. Uh, there's a few faces that are not familiar to me. Um, make sure I see you. Uh, so this is the fifth, isn't it, in a series of six talks. I'm afraid I haven't heard any of the others, so I don't know how much ground I'll be covering which will be new to you and how much you'd have heard already. But one thing that was occurring to me today was uh, the six paramitas are an amplification or an extension of an earlier um, formulation of the path, a very, very simple one, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is morality, meditation and wisdom. Do you all know that, the threefold way? That the spiritual path begins with the practice of ethics. On the basis of your practice of ethics, you can then practice meditation much more effectively. Then on the basis of your meditation practice, you can gain wisdom. So that's probably the simplest formulation of the path that there is in Buddhism. Um, now, has anybody said this before, that the six paramitas are an extension of the three-fold way? Good. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, how it works is the six paramitas are a later formulation of the path from a, a, um, a former Buddhism called Mahayana Buddhism. And Mahayana Buddhism was particularly concerned with compassion and helping others. So I guess those Mahayana Buddhists of all those hundred years ago felt that the threefold way needed a bit of extension because ethics, meditation and wisdom on its own looks like you could practice the spiritual life quite selfishly. So what they said was, actually, before you even practice ethics, you need to practice generosity. Okay, that's the first thing you do with the spiritual life. You learn to be generous. And it's sometimes said that even if sometimes you can't bring yourself to be ethical, you can always be generous. don't quite know how that works out in practice, because um, when I don't feel like being ethical, I must admit <laughs> I'm not that generous either. But this is what the tradition says, you can always be generous. And then you move on to ethics. And then, I'm not sure that I'm getting the right order here, but, um, and then you move on, uh, because you're practicing ethics, now is Shanti the next one? Good. So, according to Mahayana Buddhism, what happens is, if you are a Mahayana Buddhist, you imagine yourself, you see yourself as practicing the Dharma, not just over one lifetime, but over many, many, many lifetimes, hundreds and thousands of lifetimes. So if you're going to be generous to other people and if you're going to be ethical all the time, you're also going to need quite a lot of patience, Shanti, because you know what people are like. Um, you do your best for them and then they don't seem to be grateful. So this can be very um, irritating. So to counter that irritation, you need to also to practice Shanti or patience or forbearance. But out of this practice, out of these practices, uh, releases a lot of energy, virya. And uh, then you need to start directing your energy. So that leads us to meditation. And then meditation leads to wisdom. So I thought I'd just give you that background of the kind of history of how the six paramitas came about. Um, 
So I noticed downstairs, I just noticed today on the poster, it said this evening's talk was on concentration. Um, so the actual word, um, the Sanskrit word, the Indian word, which uh, concentration is sometimes translated as, is samadhi. Now, samadhi has, I don't know if, how long you've been around Buddhism, but there are some words that mean almost everything. Um, they've got so many different um, meanings to them. And samadhi is a very, very wide word indeed. And on the very, you might say, simplest level, samadhi simply means attention. The kind of attention, if I asked you to look at your left hand now, you'd be able to do that. Why don't you just do that? Just look at your left hand, or your right hand, doesn't matter. Now, are you aware of your hand? Okay, that's samadhi. Simple as that. Every time your mind goes to an object, sort of, as it were, seizes an object, that's samadhi, that's concentration. That's the simplest level of the term. But when it's used, usually in Mahayana Buddhism, and I think the earlier forms of Buddhism as well, usually samadhi is understood to mean concentration in a much wider and deeper sense than simply that kind of concentration. And I'll come on to that later. So really, concentration as a translation of samadhi is quite inadequate. We'll have to give a couple of extra definitions a bit later on. So when I was talking to Moksha Jyoti just the other day about giving this talk, um, I said, um, have you looked up in the Pali English Dictionary the word samadhi? And he said he hadn't, so we got it out, we looked at it. And there it was, samadhi, and it, what it said was concentration. But then there's a whole great long column of meanings and references to various Buddhist texts. And one thing that really stood out for me was a list of five things. Um, see if I can remember them now. Um, samadhi comprises five things. Guarding the senses. Self-possession. Contentment. Freedom from the five hindrances. And experience of the four dhyanas. So I'm going to go through each of these five. And you could say that once you've understood, well, better, once you've experienced all of these five, you can begin to get an idea of what samadhi is. How long have I got, by the way? Okay. When did I begin? How many minutes have I got left? <laughs> Can you go to half past? Yes, half past. Let's, let's aim for half past, because anybody who knows me knows I can talk for the whole evening, no problem. So we need to put a deadline on this. Okay, half past five, half past eight. Um, so I'm just going to go through each of these five, because I found it very interesting. So the first one, guarding the senses. Sometimes this is called guarding the doors of the senses, or guarding the gates of the senses. Very important practice in Buddhism. To be honest, I'm not sure how much we stress this, how much we emphasise this in the FWO, and especially here at the Manchester Buddhist Centre. I don't know. Have you heard about this, guarding the doors of the senses? Right, OK, that's somebody saying yes and someone saying no. So, just going to go into it quite briefly, really. So, the practice with guarding the doors of the senses is to be careful. 
Okay, so this is quite important really to be careful to be careful of what you expose yourself to because things that you expose yourself to have an effect on you they affect your mental states so in Buddhism the idea is to be careful uh, you could say that being careful is another translation of mindfulness to be mindful is to take care so maybe this evening when we leave each other we should all say take care and that will have an extra meaning that will have an inner meaning which is guard the, go- the doors of your senses because there's a whole other load of stuff out there which won't do you any good at all according to Buddhism. Um, the ancient uh, texts, they um, recommend that you walk along with your eyes cast down just a few feet ahead of you, a plowshare ahead of you. That's not much good to us because who's ever used a plowshare before? But it means it's just a few feet ahead of you and you walk just with your eyes, your gaze in front of you. You don't walk around like this. Some people don't like this because, you know, they think, well, the world is a beautiful place. Let's have a look round, which is true. But the reason for this is because it's so easy for things out there to distract you from your actual purpose. And it's understood in these texts that your purpose is to practice a spiritual life and gain enlightenment. And that's the most important thing. So just guarding the doors of the senses. Now, there are six senses in Buddhism, of course. There are the five, you know, the eye, the ear, taste, touch, smell. But there's also the mind. The mind is also a sense. So you have to guard the mind sense as well, which means you need to be careful about what you expose your mind to. Yeah? So you need to be careful what kind of books you read, for instance, what kind of things you listen to. Um, of course, there's not time for me to go into this. This could be a whole talk. Hey, we could do another series of talks, couldn't we, based on these five things? But this is, this is the idea. Now, anybody who's, who was at my talks a few months ago when Sangha night was Friday night, and I gave a series of talks on the ancient text called the Sutta the way to the beyond, I talked about this, and I said, these days, it's very hard I didn't actually say this, but I'll say it now. These days it's very, very hard to guard the doors of the senses because we live in a society where advertising is rife and they are, the advertisers are trying very, very hard to grab your attention. And um, there's loads and loads of things. There's much more out there to distract us and have a bad effect on us, not only advertising, but all sorts of things which didn't exist in ancient India. Of course, there were things in ancient India, but you, know, you didn't walk down the road and there was a television going and a radio blasting out and a great big billboard and a moving billboard. These are the worst things, aren't you? You're sitting at traffic lights and the billboards are moving, so you've got to look at the next one and the next one. Do you do that? Make sure you see the next one before the light turns green. So there's all these things taking our attention. And, and the thing that I did say a few months ago was that advertising is evil. Yeah. Now, I meant it, I was saying it tongue-in-cheek, but there's some truth in it. Because what advertising does is it wants your attention and it wants to make you feel lacking. Yeah. It wants to make you feel, oh, I'd like that mobile phone, 
new specially designed mobile phone. Oh, I need that iPod. I need a new car. I must go to Ikea to buy some more furniture. Must go to see that movie. So you just walk down the streets in Manchester and there's all these things, not only grabbing your attention, but they're grabbing your attention in a way that makes you feel lacking and you feel you need something else to fill up your existence, to make you feel whole and happy. So I say advertising are a bad thing. Um, unless you're advertising the Buddhist Centre, of course. That's different. But uh, this is why it's good to guard the doors of the senses, because you're walking down the street quite happy, quite content. You come across an advert or something, or maybe, I don't know, you might be walking, not walking down the street, you might spend an evening watching the telly. And you know what the telly does to you, don't you? The telly is full of um, beautiful people, or at least fairly good-looking people, with money. Lots of uh, programmes flaunt this at you. And um, uh, research has shown that uh, most people, when they're watching the telly, are in a state of mild depression. Yeah? Get that. They're in a state of mild depression. There are many reasons for that, but one of them is because watching the telly over a period of time makes you feel that your life is somehow not quite up to the mark. Yeah? You haven't got these wonderful new things that everyone's got. You're not as good looking anymore as uh, <laughs> some of the people on the, most of the people on the telly that are blasting out at you all the time. And it makes you feel somewhat lacking. So, guard the doors of the senses, get rid of your telly. It's simple. You'd be much happier. Do you know there was... Uh, Oh dear, no, I can't go into that. <laughs> that will take me to... No, I can't resist. Do you know uh, Bhutan? Buddhist country Bhutan. Um, uh, the ruler, a few years ago, de uh, declared that they wouldn't be so interested in GPD. Grossed... G no, what was it? Gross... Yeah, GDP, yeah. <laughs> Did you get that? I didn't hear that either. What was it? Say it again. Gross domestic product. Gross domestic product. He decided that what they would be really interested in and try to really make, you know, to the foreground, the aim of Bhutan would be GNH, Gross National Happiness, yeah, which is great. Unfortunately, a year later, he lifted the ban on TV, yeah, I suppose because he wanted a free country. So before that, there was a ban on TV. There was no television in Bhutan. So a year after this idea of gross national happiness, ban on TV, what happened? Research has shown that people are unhappier than they were before the television was there. And people, aren't people in families aren't speaking to each other anymore. They used to spend the evening talking to each other. They don't anymore. So anyway, this is a great long... Um, uh, sidetrack here. So let's move on. So uh, guarding the doors of the senses, very important practice in Buddhism. And if you want to really make progress with your mental states, if you want to really make progress with your meditation, you need, according to these ancient texts, to guard the doors of your senses. Now, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, do I do that? And I was thinking, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, which is interesting because I've devoted my life 
to practicing the Dharma and trying to gain enlightenment. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And I was thinking, actually, it's very easy to guard the doors of the senses. You walk down the street and you don't look at the adverts. You decide you're not going to watch a telly if you think that's... I mean, this, on my, my opinion, is best not to watch a telly. So I try not to watch a telly. And I try not to read daft books, you know, things that just don't do in my mind any good. I try to do all those things. But sometimes I don't. And I was thinking, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Here's me, devoted my life for the past 30 years to this way of life, and sometimes I don't do it. Why is that, I thought. And um, it's as if, sometimes, I was reflecting on this, and sometimes when you hear talks on Buddhism, or when you read books about Buddhism, you can get the idea that it's a bunch of techniques. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. And there are techniques. There's lists, of course, of techniques. But, of course, you have to practice those techniques. And you have to want to practice them. This is the important thing. You need to want to. I'll come on to this later when we get on to um, Samadhi's meditation. But you need to want to. If you don't want to, then you can have as many lists and techniques as you can possibly remember but they're not going to do you any good at all so it's as if if you want to experience samadhi you need to make a decision somewhere inside you perhaps quite deep down inside you you need to make a decision that actually that's what you want because without that decision the practices are going to be they're going to be, do some good, but they won't do as much good as if you made the decision because, frankly, sometimes you don't feel like it. So I think that's interesting. I'm going to return to that theme a bit later on, this idea of making a decision. And, of course, you can't force the decision. So you have to keep practising until such a time as you feel a decision is being made somewhere inside you. But we'll come back to that if we get time and if you remind me. Now, the next of the five factors is contentment. No, no, it's self-possession. Now, self-possession is a very interesting translation of uh, uh, two Pali terms which are put together to form one. Sati Sampajanya. Have you heard of these two? Sati Sampajanya. And usually Sati Sampajanya are translated as mindfulness. But they are actually two different words. Sati means recollection or remembrance and Sampajanya has many different translations but the one I really like is um, uh, um, continuity of purpose purpose. yeah I was going to say clarity of purpose but continuity of purpose is good because the thing about mindfulness is very often especially these days we tend to talk about mindfulness as, as being awareness of the present moment yeah And it is that, but it's also awareness of the present moment within a context of what you're actually doing with your life. Because your spiritual life happens moment by moment, of course. It happens in this moment, and this moment, and this moment. But it happens over a period of time. So continuity of purpose means that everything you do is within this overall context 
of where you're actually going. So we come back again to this theme again of what you're doing with your life. And again, with mindfulness, I'm not going to say very much about mindfulness tonight, partly because I often say a lot about it. Some of you may have been around when I've been talking a lot about it, so let's talk about something else this evening. But I don't want you to think that therefore mindfulness isn't that important. It's really, really central. Mindfulness is central. And it's basically this idea of paying attention to what's happening, what's happening around you, what's happening inside you, what's happening with your body, with your mind, with your thoughts, with your emotions. Just really paying attention to everything that's happening. In a sense, really being here in the moment, really being alive to this present moment. But it's also this sense of continuity of purpose, moving through time. And everything you do relating to your overall goal in your life. So if you're a Buddhist, it will be to move towards enlightenment. So you can see how um, uh, mindfulness relates back to guarding the doors of the senses because of this continuity of purpose. Just coming back to this translation of Sati Sampajanya as being self-possession, I like that. Um, Not quite sure why I like it, but it, it feels to me like when you're being mindful, there's a, I don't know, the, the, the term self-possession to me, it connotes to me a, a kind of a wholeness of your experience. That everything you do is you doing it. You're self-possessed. Do you see what I mean? So that when, you know, sometimes when you're in a bit of a state, we all get in a bit of a state sometimes. We might be really craving something. We might be really angry about something. We might be utterly confused or really anxious. When you're in those kind of states, you no longer possess yourself. It's as if the state has got the upper hand and you're no longer yourself. Sometimes it's like that, isn't it? You just afterwards you think, I wasn't myself at all then. So self-possession is when you're here in the moment, in your own body, in your own life doing what you think is best yeah so mindfulness has all that attached to it as a meaning um but i'm going to leave mindfulness now because i'm going to come on to the next one which is contentment the pali word is santuti lovely word and when you look up santuti in the pali dictionary it just says contentment satisfaction just those two terms very very simple contentment satisfaction so then I looked up this morning before I went to work I thought oh I think I know what contentment means but let's just have a look so I looked it up in the English dictionary what does contentment mean it means happiness a few other things as well but it means happiness but it seems to me that contentment is a certain particular kind of happiness there's a certain kind of happiness let's say um, when you've just got something that you've wanted for a long time you've bought yourself something new or you're going to get married or you're going to move into a new flat or a new home and you're really happy about it but it's a kind of excited happiness it's an ebullient happiness it's a kind of whoa that kind of happiness contentment is a very different kind of happiness and I think contentment is a very underrated form of happiness in our society yeah Contentment is the kind of happiness that you experience when you simply don't want anything. 
when you don't need anything. Again, you can see how this relates back to the guarding the doors of the senses. And advertisers hate contentment. It's the actually anathema to contentment, because if you're content, they can't sell you anything. So contentment, I think, is worth going into a bit here. Contentment is the kind of happiness that you experience when you don't want or need anything. But it's a very quiet kind of happiness. It doesn't sort of shout. It doesn't say, whoa, it's not like that. It's just, ah, simply that. It's that kind of happiness. And it's the kind of happiness you get if you allow yourself to slow down a bit. If you allow yourself to stop chasing after things. Yeah, even if they're good things to chase after. Stop chasing after them every now and then. See what that feels like. It's the kind of happiness that you experience when you're just here with yourself, with whatever's happening. Yeah, and you're accepting this present moment. So there's a certain acceptance involved in contentment. There's a, an ancient Greece, Greek philosopher called um, Epicurus. Epicurus is um, uh, somewhat maligned because very often people think that Epicurus taught um, having a good time, you know, partying, good wines, gourmet food. And there's actually a food company, isn't there, called Epicure? What are they called? Epicurus, is it? Epicurean? Anyway, you know what Epicureanism means. It means really gourmet food and the best of everything. But actually, Epicurus lived very, very simply. He didn't know what gourmet food was. He just ate whatever was around, drank water, was happy with nothing. And um, what he said was, if you, really are, if you really pay attention to your actual experience, what you'll find is being is happiness. Yeah? Just being alive is enough. Yeah? Just being alive is pleasurable. That's what he said. That's why he's got such a bad name now, because people think he was just a pleasure seeker. But the pleasure that Epicurus, um, Epicurus, Epicurus um, spoke about was not partying pleasure. It wasn't the pleasure of having what you want. It was the pleasure of just being here with your experience. Now, there's a poem that I often, some of you have heard me recite this poem, so apologies because it's my favourite poem. It's the only poem I know off by heart. And I often recite it when I'm giving Dharma talks because it seems to me to express something really, really important about the Dharma and it expresses Epicurus's insight. It's a poem by David White, a Welsh poet. It's called Enough. So, is that a clue? You heard me? No? Good. No one's heard it. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again. Until now. Until now. So that's a poem. And it expresses so well this idea of contentment. And Epicurus' insight of just being is happiness. So it's as if... To bring it back into the Dharma realm, I could say, we've all got enough now. Yeah. None of us need any more. Yeah. You've all got clothes on, quite good clothes, looking around. 
uh, we're all well fed we're probably all hopefully going back to homes we've got enough we need no more yeah what we need now to do is to sink back into our life and experience our life more fully if not this breath this sitting here this sitting here is enough yeah you don't need any more this sitting here opening to the life we have refused again and again until now until now now um I often, when I talk about this poem, what I say is this opening to the life we have refused again and again. I often pose the question, what is this life that we have not opened to, yeah, until now? And why haven't we opened to it? And what I often say is that um, in my own experience, because when I first read that poem, or maybe I heard it, I can't remember now, but when I first came across the poem, I intuited a very important truth in it. I intuited that it was right, that it was true. But I didn't really know what this life we have refused again and again. What was this life? In what way have I been refusing life again? I knew it was right, but I couldn't figure it out. So I did a bit of figuring out. And um, I think there are a number of things. And one thing is, uh, let's speak for myself. One thing that I shy away from and I close up against uh, is uh, unpleasant experiences yeah conflict with people um, disappointment not getting what I want pain discomfort so I don't like those things so I don't really want them in my life I don't want to include them in my life I want a life of happiness and pleasure obviously and so when things don't go as planned, when I suffer in some way, I don't want that. So not only do I experience the pain, the discomfort, the disappointment of that, but I also try to push it away. Oh, I don't want you, I don't want you. So I'm trying to refuse that part of life. But actually, that is part of life. So when we refuse a certain part of life, we kind of close down against a certain part of our life. And that closing down... Once you start closing down on something, it's hard to stop it closing down. Yeah, once you close a door, it's hard. It's almost like once you close one door, a lot of doors are closed at the same time, a whole band of experience. So if we tend to close against unhappiness and sadness, then what tends to happen is we don't experience the happiness and the joy so much because we're closing down on our emotions. Do you see what I mean? So... Um, there's that. That's often what I talk about. But there's another aspect to this, I think, which is very important, which is sometimes we refuse even the pleasant, strange beings that we are. Yeah? Sometimes we refuse the beautiful, the happy, the pleasant, the things that deep down we really want. Because sometimes they can be overwhelming. We can be overwhelmed by happiness there's um just oh dear there's uh, uh practice that you may have come across that we do a lot in the FWO called rejoicing in merits you come across this and what happens is um sometimes we just decide to rejoice in somebody's merits which means to celebrate their life to celebrate their wonderful qualities and uh so what should be a really wonderful 
life-affirming, life-enhancing experience for someone can be quite difficult because there's a bunch of people saying how wonderful this person is and this quality, I really like this quality and I love this about you. And you can see people cringing sometimes. Oh, don't say that about me. I don't quite know why that is, but it's definitely something that happens. So um, it's as if we tend to refuse, we tend to close down against any strong experience, whether it's positive or negative, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Of course, we tend to close down against the unpleasant more than the pleasant, but even the pleasant. And I want to say a bit more about this when I come on to the next bit of talk, which I'll have to come on to very quickly. So that's probably enough about contentment, I think. But as I say, a very underrated um, positive emotion and something that I think we could probably, most of us, take more seriously and pay more attention to. But it's time to come on now to um, the fourth aspect of samadhi, which is freedom from the five hindrances. Now, do you know what the five hindrances are? Okay, so I'll have to go very quickly into the five hindrances. What do they hinder you from? Specifically, they hinder you from meditating. Or they hinder you from experiencing jhana, which is the last thing I'm going to go into a bit later on. And um, they are five particular states of mind. And when you're in one of those states of mind, it's very, very difficult to... um, Well, it's impossible to experience samadhi. Um, So, sense desires. So, again... Here we're going back again to um, the first thing, which is guarding the doors of the senses, aren't we? Sense desires. It's basically that that sense of being more interested in your outward senses than you are in your inner life. Yeah? So when you're meditating and there's a sound, well, you can hear that sound and think, oh, I'll let it go, come back to what I'm doing. But sometimes it's hard to do that, isn't it? There's a sound and think, what's going on out there? Shall I just have a look? So there's this sort of sense of attraction. Basically, the hindrance of sense desire is this kind of attraction to the five senses. The sixth sense is actually because it includes thoughts, thinking about things. Um, And you might think, well, what is there apart from the six senses if it includes the mind? But there is something else, and we're going to come on to that in the last few minutes of the talk. Um, That's the first one, sense desire. The second one is the opposite. Sense desire is attraction. The second one is ill will, or anger, or hatred, or irritation. It's that sense of you're trying to meditate and you remember something that somebody said to you and think, ah, I'm going to get them back for that. And so it's this kind of ill will towards other people, mainly towards other people, sometimes towards objects, of course, computers, uh, but mainly towards, um, towards people. Third one is uh, restlessness and anxiety. So when you're in a restless, anxious state, again, it's like you're not content. You're not with yourself. There's this sense of wanting, you know, to be doing something else, to move on. There's this sense of um, lack of stillness. Yeah. Again, I can't go into these in any great detail. Um, then the, the fourth one again is the opposite of uh, restlessness and anxiety it's a kind of dullness it's sloth 
Sloth is the word that's not of news these days, but uh, usually when you read Buddhist texts, that's the word, sloth, sloth, um, uh, and torpor. Well, who's, whoever uses the word torpor, sloth and torpor. I mean, where do they get these translations from? It's probably somebody translated the text 50 years ago and we're still using it. But it basically means a kind of laziness, sleepy laziness, you know, where you sort of like, oh, I can't be bothered really to meditate today. I just, I just kind of groove around a bit and fall asleep. It's that kind of sleepy, lazy kind of state. Very, very laid back kind of state. And the fifth one is doubt and indecision. It's not a kind of heavy doubting of the spiritual life so much as a kind of doubt and indecision. You, you sit down to meditate and you think, mm, should I meditate actually? Or maybe... Or maybe I'll phone so-and-so up. Or, no, actually, you said you meditate, so... Mm, shall I? It's that kind of state where you haven't quite decided. Again, we're back to this idea of decision. You know, you haven't quite decided to really meditate. But also, there is this element of doubt in it, and it's, the, it's more like a doubting of yourself. You'll know this one, probably, when you meditate. You sit down and you think, I can't do this. I'm not in the mood at all. can't do it today. Or even... I can't do it at all. You know, sometimes you have these thoughts, oh, to hell with it, I can't meditate. It's that kind of doubt and indecision which actually prevents you from actually being with yourself. Those are the five hindrances. And samadhi is a freedom from those five hindrances. So now we're getting, we're getting a bit closer to the kind of what I think of as the deeper and wider meaning of the word samadhi. So you're not anxious. You're not after anything any sense to pleasures or anything. You're not in a state of ill will. You're not dull, so you're quite alive and bright. And you're not doubting, you're not indecisive. So you, you know what you're doing and so on. So if you, when you start thinking of the opposites of these five hindrances, you start getting towards samadhi. So now it's time to say a bit about samadhi. Earlier I was talking about its usual translation, is concentration. That's quite an inadequate translation, really. Because very often when we think about concentration, we think of, it's very easy to think of the mind, the head, yeah, paying attention. And this kind of almost a forcible fixation of the mind on something. And it's not that at all. Um, I'm hesitating here because I had a lovely definition of something and I've forgotten to bring it with me. I left it upstairs. But, but never mind. I'll try to remember what it is. Samadhi is concentration, but in the sense of absorption. Yeah? When you're in a state of samadhi, you're absorbed in what you're doing. Yeah? Fully absorbed. The whole of you is present. Now, the way I think of samadhi is it's an experience of wholeness. Yeah? There's a sense of wholeness to it. Even there's a sense of roundedness to your experience. You know, sometimes you have an experience and it's a bit sharp, it's a bit fractious, it's a bit fractured. There's a bit two or three things going on at the same time. And there's but with samadhi, there's a kind of softness to it. There's a roundedness and a wholeness. And when you experience samadhi in meditation, it's a bit like a sense of coming home to yourself. Sometimes a word that's used is integration. And I never used to like this term integration much. It, set, it felt a bit psychological. But I looked it up in the dictionary. This is why I wish I had this bit of paper with me here. I'll try to remember what it says. But 
Um, yes, integration means wholeness. <coughs> but it also, uh, it comes from the Latin in, inter... can't remember. Integrav. That's, that's, that, that's not the actual word I was thinking of. But anyway, the Latin, I can't remember the, the, word, the Latin word, but it's something like that. And uh, it, um, it, it has a sense of renewal, restoring to wholeness. Yeah? So the actual original Latin word meant restoring to wholeness, and I like that. So there's a sense of restoring yourself to your whole state. Yeah? And a sense of renewal. Because sometimes when, I think sometimes when we talk about these things, becoming integrated and absorbed, it, again it can sound rather technical. I suppose the main message I want to get across this evening is that when you're in a state of samadhi, it's not that you're, that you're concentrated. It's not even, even the word absorption somehow doesn't quite do it. It's not that you're just absorbed. But when you're concentrated and when you're absorbed, there's this sense of wholeness. And when there's this sense of wholeness, and this is the important thing, I think, there's a sense of renewal. A sense of restoration. Do you see what I mean? There's a sense of new life coming into, into play. Um, there's a sense of seeing things afresh, seeing things anew, and experiencing your life anew. In a sense, samadhi is the opposite of being jaded. You know when you're a bit jaded after a Long day's work in a hot day. Maybe some of you came to the centre a bit jaded. I did. A bit sort of, how am I going to give a talk on Somali this evening? My eyes were sort of drooping a bit and I felt a bit greasy and sweaty. And, yeah. But Samadhi is the opposite of that. It's almost like even if you are a bit greasy and sweaty, when you experience Samadhi, it's as if there's this new life coming to existence. And it's new. It's like a leaf, you know, in spring when you look at the new leaves coming out and there's something absolutely magical about them, isn't there, these new leaves. The, the green of the new leaf is just something else, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. And you get this idea, or this not idea, a sort of sense of new life springing forth, and it's innocent. Yeah. Now, this is another thing I'm remembering now, some of the other things that I saw in the dictionary. Integration, we often think of it our past. We often think of it as being psychological, bringing of the self together. But it's much more than that. There's an ethical sense to it. There's a moral sense. You know, if somebody says, oh, that person has got great integrity, it means that they're moral, they're upright, yeah? They're ethical, they're honourable. And integration means that too. And Innocence was the word. That with samadhi, you only really experience samadhi if you live an ethical life. That's why ethics lead to meditation. And the reason for that is because it makes you innocent. Yeah? And innocence makes you free. Yeah? You become like a new leaf just budding out. And this new leaf is not only beautiful and fresh... But it's also very, very tender. Yeah? There's this kind of tenderness that emerges 
when you really start meditating, it's almost as if you let go into this kind of soft, tender, innocent, fresh, new sense of being. It's like, almost like a new you comes into existence. Hence, I like this idea of renewal. It's like you're renewing yourself. You're becoming fresh to yourself. And this sense of restoring oneself to wholeness. That's what I think samadhi really is. And when, when you free yourself of the five hindrances, then you begin to experience a new sense of life and you experience yourself in a new kind of way and it's completely and utterly valuable. This is why I'm um, going to the Christian tradition for a couple of minutes. There's something about what would you gain if you gained the whole world and you lost yourself? Is that, can somebody help me with this Christian phrase? No? Hmm? What would it profit a man? And lose his soul. What would it profit a man to gain a whole world and lose his soul? So we're back to enough. Yeah? When you start going out, you, can, you might be really successful at getting things. But that's not that important. What's important is coming back to yourself and renewing yourself, having this sense of innocence and renewal. And this leads us on to the four jhanas. I'm sorry, I'm going on. Let, give me another five minutes and we'll finish. When you're free of the five jhanas, you begin to experience samadhi. And when you experience samadhi, what you, as I've said, you experience your sense as, as whole, as innocent, as renewed. And then the four jhanas are kind of extensions of that isn't quite right. They're more like developments or explorations of that sense. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the four dhyanas, but they're, they're, they're ever-deepening senses of contentment, in a way, and happiness. That sort of innocent joy. And I'm just going to give you the four similes, rather than go into um, exactly what they are. But the first simile is, um, imagine you've got some powder and you've got some water. So powder is dry, water is wet. And you bring them together. And just so that there's enough powder and water so that they sort of meld together. So this is kind of, the first one is a kind of bringing together of your whole being. A restoring yourself to wholeness. Yeah. People talk about the, the, the dryness and the wetness, the, the powder and the water as representing different things. It could represent um, your understanding on one side and your emotions on the other. It could be the conscious and the unconscious. It doesn't really matter, but the main thing is a bringing together of kind of opposites into a whole harmonious wholeness. Then if you experience that and you carry on, you, you move on to the second one. And the second one is where the simile is, uh, is pure water, yeah? Perfectly clear water, so you can see right down to the bottom of it, a little pool, let's say, a spring. But underneath the pool is a subterranean spring. Fresh water is bubbling up from underneath it, coming up, bubbling up into the, into the spring. So and this is sometimes said to be the stage of inspiration, where inspiration is bubbling up. So again, the sense of renewal and restoration bubbling up. And I like that because sometimes when I'm meditating, it is as if 
There's something bubbling up from there, coming up in my body, upwards, and kind of... Mm, oh, renew, I said, coming back to this word renewal, I seem to like this word, renewing myself and making myself new. Then the third one is, um, I don't know if you've seen lotus flowers in water. Very often lotus flowers grow up above the water. But some lotus flowers are growing inside the water. They're underneath, submerged in the water. And this one is like you're submerged within the state of contentment or the state of renewal and happiness and wholeness. Now, I really like this one. You might be thinking, that's a bit weird, being inside it. But I don't know if you've ever had this, but sometimes you can experience yourself... Let's say you're, you're experiencing an emotion and you experience it somewhere here in the body. Yeah, joy you experience here. Anger you might experience somewhere down there, but it's kind of contained within the body. But when you really soften in meditation, when you kind of let go into meditation, what you can experience sometimes is as if it's reversed. And it's as if you are living in the emotion rather than the emotion living in you. Do you see what I mean? It's almost like you're in this... Mm. Oh, I can't think of the word, but there's this context of contentment. You see what I mean? There's a kind of wholeness in it. You're in it. You're completely submerged in that wonderful state of wholeness. You're so whole that you're like this, yeah? And you're in it somewhere, yeah? And then fourth one is um, imagine somebody on a hot day quite easy to do today and you're really really hot imagine you on a hot day really hot sweating a bit jaded a bit greasy and then you just plunge into a cool pool right yeah and you stay there for some time and you get really really cool then you come out of the pool and you wrap yourself in a pure white towel yeah, and you know how sometimes um, you can feel the heat coming at you but you're so cool that it just stays on the outside and you're cool inside so much so that actually your coolness is actually radiating outwards you're making the air around you a bit cooler Yeah, so you're affecting so the fourth one is really good because it's the state where up until now, we've been talking about just ourselves, haven't we? But in, in the, the fourth jhana, what happens is you're so renewed. You're so new as a being. You're so innocent. You're so fresh. You're so tender. You're so happy and joyful that it's just radiating outwards. You ever been in that state when you're really happy and you go into a room and people go, wow, you're happy? And you can see these smiles coming over your faces. Whoa! And everyone's happy. Yeah? That's what it's like to be in the fourth jhana. It's like the world is no longer affecting you. Yeah? Going right back to this idea of guarding the doors of the senses. No need to now. Yeah? Because you're affecting everything that's out there in a positive way. You're actually radiating everything that the spiritual life is, basically. Happiness, Joy, love, compassion. Yeah, all those things, you're radiating them outwards. In a word, 
innocence. I seem to have cottoned on to this weird kind of renewal and innocence. And in a way, that's what I really want to um, bring home to you this evening, that the spiritual life isn't all about making an effort to get into these concentrated states to gain wisdom. It's about restoring yourself to yourself, yeah? Restoring yourself to your wholeness. And the very last thing I want to say, and we will, this will be the last thing, how does that help you to become wise? Now, Vijimala will say more about that next week, but there's just one thing I want to say about this. It's not that we meditate and we become integrated and you know, we focus so that we can understand the truth. Yeah? It's not that so much as samadhi represents the fact that you need to become the kind of person who can receive the truth. Yeah? Samadhi is a state of wholeness and absorption. Next thing you need to do is absorb the truth. But you can only do that as a whole person. You can only do that from this state of innocence. That's when this state of whole, absorbed innocence, that's when it's as if the gates begin to open. Yeah. You begin to open up. You become receptive to what is really the truth, what is really the Dharma. So it's not a technical thing. It's not that you need to get into a state and then you can have wisdom. It's, it's more that you need to become the kind of person who can receive wisdom. And we go back to this idea of making a decision. You need to make a decision that that's what you really want and that's what you want your life to be and that's what you want your life to stand for. And then you keep having to make that decision over and over again because once isn't enough. You have to keep making that decision. So when you're distracted by an advert out there and you think, oh, I could do with a new iPod player because my one's a bit out of date now, you come back to the decision you made some time ago that actually, but didn't you agree with yourself that actually that wasn't so important and that this was the important thing? And if you begin to live your life like that, coming back to what is really important to you, to your inner values, then you'll begin to begin to experience samadhi inside and outside of meditation. You'll begin to experience yourself as an innocent, whole, absorbed being. And then you'll begin to understand what life is really about. So, I have to apologise, I'm sorry. (laughs) 15 minutes over time. (laughs) But there we are. Okay.